When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 93rd episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is how non-traditional partners can win together. I'm joined by Dr. Shamin Prashantham. He is the author of Gorillas Can Dance, Lessons from Microsoft and Other Corporations on Partnering with Startups. The publisher is John Wiley and Sons. Damin is a professor of international business and strategy and an associate dean at China Europe International Business School, known as CIBS, located in Shanghai, China. For the past decade and a half, he's conducted fieldwork, taught executives, and given talks around the world focused on partnerships that contribute to sustainable development goals. Welcome to the show, Shamin. Thank you so much, Dan. It's great to join you on this podcast. Wonderful. So let's let's start with just a brief uh, overview. Gorillas Can Dance. What's the book about? So the book is about how large corporations can partner effectively with startups. Uh, and I talk about three aspects of this, the why, the how, and the where. So the starting point is to recognize that large corporations are under pressure to be entrepreneurial uh, because of uh, forces of disruption due to uh, digitalization, growing competition, changes in the environment, and so on. And one way in which to do this is to engage with entrepreneurship outside of the boundaries of their firm. But then that leads to the question of how. And one of the key insights I got from my fieldwork is that there is a paradox of asymmetry which means that the very differences 
that make big and small companies attractive to each other, the fact that one has scale and the other agility, actually makes it difficult in reality to work together. Uh, and so the how involves identifying these asymmetries and overcoming them systematically. And I've been fortunate to study companies that have been able to do this over time, and I try to distill ideas from, from their work. And then finally, the where is to say that, particularly for multinational corporations, there is potential to work with startups in different parts of the world uh, and to benefit from this but that takes some doing, which is uh, uh, to recognize there are differences in different locations, uh, and they need to take that into account. Okay. So let me start with Microsoft, since that's uh, you know a principal actor in the book. Um, you know, it's been said that CEOs can contribute or or enforce, as it may be, uh, as much as fifty percent of a company's culture and kind of atmosphere or environment. Bill Gates to Steve Ballmer. Satya Nadella strikes me as potentially three very different personalities. Uh, any observations from your work and time with Microsoft? Uh, so you're absolutely right that Microsoft is, is, is kind of the lead case in my book. And uh, I got lucky, I think. I was able to follow what they were doing for uh, about a decade and a half. And uh, so I got, I, I started observing Microsoft when Steve Barmer was in charge. And I think what was clear after he had taken over from Bill Gates is that Microsoft had new uh, strategic imperatives. One of the things they were doing in a big way was uh, getting into enterprise software. In 2001, they launched this .NET platform, which began to inform the way in which they were building an ecosystem of partners who would develop software using their underlying technology. And then the open source movement uh, posed a bit of a threat because then software developers could get tools that were free. And Microsoft was in a way trying to attract developers to build on top of uh, Microsoft. And particularly, they recognized a, that they needed startups to get excited about Microsoft tools, but that B, it wasn't easy for them to access uh, Microsoft. And I think it was really under Steve Barmer that uh, he brought in uh, Dana Lewin, who had been part of the uh, Apple Macintosh team as a young man, had uh, was one of the people Steve Jobs took along with him to Next. And so Dana was driving startup engagement under Steve Barmer out of Silicon Valley. And I think a lot happened under Steve Barmer that maybe he doesn't get credit for, but I think the foundations were built then. And they went through a process of both top-down initiatives driven out of uh, headquarters, as well as bottom-up initiatives that were driven out of places like Israel, where there were some enterprising managers like Zach Weisfeld, who felt Microsoft should be doing even more with startups and created this corporate accelerator model. So first of all, I think you're right. CEOs uh, do set the tone. But even under Steve Barmer, as they were exploring different uh, possibilities, uh, some of which worked, uh, some of which didn't, like the phone, there were these efforts going on driven out of both the U.S. and other parts of the world like Israel. I think what happened under Satya was that building on that 
uh, foundation. And given the particular emphasis he was placing on cloud computing, and given that cloud computing has been a game changer for startups in the sense that they now don't have to invest heavily upfront in IT infrastructure, it was a very natural fit then. And then what Satya did, I think, was to make startup partnering more mainstream, much more integrated with the core of the strategy. Working with startups could directly help Microsoft to uh, sell more of its cloud services. And so uh, I, I, I agree with you. Different CEOs have different emphases. Bill was the founder. Uh, but actually in that in middle period of Steve Barmer, uh, some very important things happened to lay the foundations that Satya and his team subsequently built upon. Okay, well, that's interesting to hear. I, I admit that maybe it's just because uh, I don't have the same inside sense of things that you do. Uh, to me, Balmer seemed a little less nimble uh, in his presentation skills and persona that, than Satya does, but uh, that's that's just my outside perception. I'm interested in this role of digitization. Uh, you, have a, you quote Satya at one point and say, every company is now a software company, and I'm wondering what kind of mindset comes from digitization and comes from this recognition that every company is now a software company. Yeah, so... Um... Initially, the companies that I came across engaging actively with startups were companies like Microsoft and IBM and even SAP. Uh, there were, of course, these giants like Google and Facebook that were relatively young, meaning they've been around, you know, these were, were, were the products of the first wave of the Internet. And these were, of course, big. But uh, digital startups actually actively reached out to them and uh, wanted to, to work with them. But these older IT companies like Microsoft and SAP, they were a little bit different. They, on the one hand, recognized that they needed more and more startups to be building applications using their tools, but also that there was a bit of a disconnect. Uh, goes back to this paradox of asymmetry. And so they started working hard to find ways to engage. But then over time, I think what... Uh, struck me was how, particularly around 2015 or so, many traditional companies, uh, or, or rather companies in traditional industries like automotive, banking, fast mover consumer goods, they started announcing startup partner initiatives. Companies like BMW, for example, launched something uh, that they call Startup Garage in Munich, uh, looking to engage with startups. And of course, for a company like BMW, they could see that their future was no longer going to be based on the internal combustion engine, but rather issues like connectivity, the electric vehicle, the sharing economy, uh, and so on. And so they re recognized how important digitalization was going to be, how core it was going to be, uh, and that they had pain points in areas like cybersecurity and so on. I, I think that's an illustration of what Satya was saying. And also, I have a quote from the former Ford CEO, who pretty much says, when I joined this company, it was an automotive company. Now I feel it's more of a technology company. Uh, and so uh, the recognition that, therefore, you needed to have access to complementary capabilities from other partners, and that these partners may be dramatically different uh, from uh, oneself, I think is something that these traditional companies started to uh, to realize 
uh, and had to deal with, and which is why I think in the past five, six years, many of these companies have reached out specifically to digital startups. Sure, no, it makes a lot of sense to me. I just was reading a book where the uh, survey results were such that about 40% of the participants, business people, said that their company needed to pretty much largely change itself every three years or less, um, which really speaks to the, the pace of innovation and this dire need to, to stay ahead of the curve if possible. To me, maybe my favorite moment in your book, um, speaking of that paradox of asymmetry, is when you put it in in uh, plain language, as it were, and you said that for the corporations, they're afraid in this these partnerships that the the uh, startups may lack the competency and the trustworthiness, and their concern is, will they screw up? And on the other hand, for the startups given the fact that they're involved with a much larger giant that I suppose could trample on them, their question or concern is they'll be taken advantage of, and therefore, will we be screwed over? So screw up versus screw over, uh, that was that was really you know a memorable way of putting the contrast. So I, I want you to take that on rather directly if you can, and maybe elaborate a bit. Sure. So... When I talk about asymmetry, I say that there are three aspects to this. There's an asymmetry of goals. They, these different companies want different things at, at, in, and at different time uh, uh, scales. They there's also an asymmetry of structure. The way these organizations are built, it's not easy to find role counterparts. And there's an asymmetry of attention in the sense that um, the big companies don't know which particular startups are worthy of their attentions and the startups don't know how to get the attention of the decision makers in big companies. Um, but underlying all of this, uh, or what ties all of this together in, 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 a, in a sense is an asymmetry of trust as well. And so uh, the quote, uh, I think, is referring to two different dimensions of trust. There is a competence trust. Can I trust you to deliver on what you say you will? In other words, uh, can I be sure you won't screw up? Uh, and I think that's the big concern for the big company, because these startups um, can appear promising, but by definition, many of them don't have a track record. Uh, and so, uh, and and of course, many corporate managers are oriented towards being risk averse. Uh, mistakes are punished, and so that becomes a big concern. For them, uh, whereas from the startup's point of view, uh, it's the it's another dimension of trust, which is benevolence trust. Will you take undue advantage of me? Uh, will my intellectual property be compromised? This is the will you screw me over uh, type of concern. And I think um, the companies, the big companies that have made progress over time uh, in terms of uh, making startup partnering work, are the ones that have very actively, consciously uh, try to assuage these concerns. For example, BMW uh, says very clearly, any intellectual property developed in this process of working together belongs to you, the startup. And I think th these are the confidence-building measures uh, that help greatly. No, no, I think that's a, that's a great answer because it really does strike me that there, <laughs> there is this issue there and it does start with, you know, what are the goals and the mentality? And I even think about an entrepreneur versus a manager or an executive that the entrepreneur might be paired with, uh, I can almost imagine that their personality traits could be, you know, quite different. Um, that you know, as part of being risk adverse, if a manager is highly conscientious, for instance, would would be very desirable. 
Whereas an entrepreneur, just like it was one set of Thomas Jefferson, that you know he just explodes off the chart in terms of openness to experience, in terms of the creativity. So you have you know different goals, you have different scales, but you also got just plain old difference, you know, personalities and mentalities involved. How you know? Yes, I understand trying to foster that trust and say your IP is yours. But, you know, it goes from both sides and there there really is a chasm potentially. How have you seen companies best able to to bridge that chasm or make it work if they're if the personalities can be potentially so different? Great question. And I mean, that goes to the heart of what I've been uh, researching. And so uh, let me um, answer this in two parts. The first part is sort of to say when you identify these asymmetries, you can find ways to address them. And the pattern that I've seen is with relation to the goal asymmetry, uh, what companies that do startup partnering well uh, uh, seem to do is to clarify the synergy. And in other words, to say what exactly, when we talk about win-win, what exactly is the win for either side? And that sounds blindingly obvious, but actually many companies don't make it very clear at the outset. And I find, for example, companies like Microsoft emphasizing a building block type of synergy. You come and build your, uh, if you as a startup build your product on top of our underlying technology, then every time the product is sold, we both get revenues and we will help you in this process. There may be co-selling, whereas a company like BMW may say, we have pain points. And so you can come and help to address these in cybersecurity, say, and we become your first marquee client. And then in terms of the asymmetry of structure, creating interfaces, having these Uh, very visible first ports of call, BMW Startup Garage, Microsoft for Startups, where there are managers who have KPIs to engage with startups. Uh, And then finally, in terms of addressing the asymmetry of attention, uh, cultivating exemplars, meaning quite intentionally trying to uh, identify and develop success stories because this helps both sides to see what success can look like and have a better idea of who to work with. Now, the second part of the answer then is, for all of these things though, you need people, which I think uh, goes to the the question you are asking about. And here I would make a couple of comments. One, the people at the bridge in these interfaces, uh, the choice of that individual is extremely important. And what I find is common to all of them is that they are, intrapreneurs. So intrapreneurship is, is, a, is a bit of a buzzword. And uh, every time I uh, talk about intrapreneurship in my class, uh, my classic example is 3M and post-it notes. And I understand that's actually uh, something that's close to your heart, Dan, and that you have a close personal connection to. Yes. But, yes my father ran the 3M printed post-it notes. Yes. Indeed. Right. Uh, but I think, you know, that mindset is actually important in the corporate manager that's running these interfaces. And uh, they need to have sufficient empathy for the entrepreneur on the outside because the, the pressures of the entrepreneur and the pressures of the corporate manager are rather different. It's not like the manager in the big company has it easy, uh, but it's, it's a very different type of pressure. So first of all, showing empathy. And by the way, some of the most effective managers I found at these interfaces are people who ended up in the big company because they were startup entrepreneurs and the big company acquired the startup. And so sometimes having these managers who have actually experienced startups before can help 
but not always is that possible. So, so you at least want people with the entrepreneurial mindset. And then the other thing I would say is, it's not just about engaging with the outside party, the startup partner. It's also about the boundary spanning that's done on the inside. And by boundary spanning, I mean reaching out to managers and other business units, reaching out to some of the uh, top leaders, people with whom there may not be a formal uh, connection, but you go, you make the effort to go and reach out to them because these people need to buy in as well, because otherwise the startups will not have the opportunity, meaningful opportunities to engage with the company because the opportunities ultimately come out of business units. Uh, and I, I think the, the role of the people uh, as you suggest, is, is very important. And so to have people who are entrepreneurial, people who are collaborative in the sense that they are able to build bridges both inside and outside. And the third piece I would also add, uh, especially for those leading these interfaces, is to have a global perspective because there's scope to tap into startups around the world. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Yeah, no, I, I think that person at, as you said, at the bridge is uh, needs to wear a lot of hats, have a lot of skill sets, and uh, is really instrumental to the success. I mean, for instance, another statistic I know is that it's estimated about 2.5% of the global population are innovators. So they're not exactly common. And uh, yet, yes, your suggestion that maybe someone who was an entrepreneur becomes an entrepreneur is great. But it also seems to me in that boundary spanning, they need to be an advocate. They have to be a diplomat. They quite possibly can or should be a mentor. Boy, that's a lot of things <laughs> for that person to do well. What What's your guess as to the percentage of people who uh, pull off being at the bridge, so to speak, successfully? It's a very small minority. Not only that, uh, over the course of my research, which has spanned over a decade, Many of the people that I was speaking to in the early stages of my research are no longer at the company uh, where they made their name uh, by setting up startup partnering. And in fact, many of them have moved on and set up their own consultancies. And I think it's part of the reason I would guess is that it's extremely stressful. And actually, in a sense, the easy part is dealing with the startups because over a period of time, you figure it out, you understand how to adjust the partnering process, the way we've talked about it, you know, clarifying the synergy, creating the interface, cultivating exemplars. And once startups realize that the big company is interested in talking to them, I mean, it's in their interest to engage with the big company. But the, the, what I think exhausts a lot of people is the internal dealings. Uh, and, yes. you know, especially when there's a supportive leader, business leader, and uh, he or she moves on, and then the next person isn't nearly as supportive. So I think there, 
being politically savvy. I, I, I love the word you use, being a diplomat. I think that is extremely important. Uh, building coalitions of support within. Yeah, uh, the no, it seems to me there's a lot of stress all around this person, you know, at the bridge needs a lot of skills. And I can tell you, having been an entrepreneur myself, at one point I went to the dentist and he, he said, because I guess whatever, however it manifests itself in terms of my dental hygiene, he said, uh, you have evidence of the sort of stress that I only see in two other professions, detectives uh, and trial lawyers. Oh, my goodness. Um, mm. And and then entrepreneurs. And I said, oh, my God, even my body's giving away the fact that there's this much stress that's involved in, in running something. Since you, you're in Shanghai, the last place I'd like to go is China for a moment. Um, so for, for one thing, you know, China's now pushing the, um, you know, the, the notion of common prosperity. And since we've been talking about bridges and trying to bring people in the fold and, and, and uh, boundary spanning. Uh, any perspective from there in Shanghai on what you think really common prosperity is going to mean both for China uh, and for the global economy? Okay, uh, great question. L let me get to this in this way. So, so first of all, uh, as I was studying how um, big companies like Microsoft were engaging with startups, especially when Israel came into the picture, I feel they started looking eastward a lot. And then on the heels of the Israeli startup accelerator being established, they established accelerators in China and India back in 2012, uh, nearly a decade ago. And I think both of these um, startup ecosystems have, uh, have exploded, but in China, there's a certain distinctive element to this because the tech giants in this part of the world are different, Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent. And then other multinationals also began to realize that something interesting was going on. So I mentioned how BMW started in Munich in 2015. Well, three years later, they were actively beginning to scout in China, trying to work with startups. So I think my opening comment is to say that there has been a rise in uh, the startup ecosystem, an emphasis on technology, particularly areas like AI. And uh, there's been a lot of development, a lot of support from the government. But in the process, I think what has also happened more generally is that as there has been economic development, there's a sense in which that, that there is inequality. So uh, there was a time when people would ask, what is the next China? you know, uh, because a lot of companies had come and succeeded here. And some people would say India, but then one reaction would be maybe not just now. You can see it happening in a few years' time. Some people would say Africa. And again, there was a sense of, yes, it's a billion people as a continent, but, you know, it's still difficult to have a pan-African strategy. And then I started hearing a lot of people saying the next China is China. Uh, and the <laughs> distinction being made was that there's a 1.4 billion population, but a lot of the economic development that's happened and the market that is attracting a lot of people is about, a, is about 0.4 billion. And there's still another billion in the smaller tier cities, towns, and villages uh, that still um, you know, represent a market opportunity, but by implication also have to develop or have scope to develop further. Now, the rise of the mobile internet 
has made the internet ubiquitous. The availability of lower end handsets has made it possible for people in smaller towns and villages to access the internet. And I think what common prosperity is about is saying, okay, we've seen prosperity for the 0.4 billion, but now let's make it more common to the and, and more accessible to the other 1 billion. So as far as my reading goes, um, you know, the emphasis, you know, it's it's not about diluting the emphasis on prosperity. It's about trying to make it more common, which says that there is a big uh, market opportunity uh, for both uh, Chinese companies and multinational companies in China. But it will involve going outside of the comfort zone. You know, most executives in large multinationals uh, like to live in places like Shanghai, and for very good reason. It's uh, you know a great city. It's the most international of the mainland China cities. The access to international schools for the kids and stuff like that. Uh, but I think the there is opportunity in the. Now, beyond the, you know, you have to go a little bit off the beaten track. And I think uh, that's the direction in which the next phase of the economy will be. Okay. No, I think that's a very good answer. I think it's in your book also, by the way, kind of as a sidebar since you mentioned Israel. Didn't you say in the book at some point that Israel was almost like a startup country? Indeed, Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was wonderfully said. Um, Just before we close here, is there a a last point or observation you want to make before I I bring this home? Well, I think, um, you know, the 2020s, the decade that we're now in, the United Nations designated as the decade of action at the the General Assembly in September 2019, uh, at which point nobody uh, foresaw that COVID was around the corner. And the idea was that, you know, we have these 17 sustainable development goals that were adopted in 2015 to be achieved by 2030, and that in the 2020s, efforts should be accelerated for this. And now with COVID, the decade of action has become more challenging, yet more pertinent. And the 17th of these 17 sustainable development goals, or SDGs, is partnerships for the goals. And the way in which this was expressed uh, back in 2015 was mostly in terms of governments working with each other, uh, governments working with civil society. Of course, there's a role for business. But my work makes me think that an important element of SDG 17 should surely be non-traditional allies coming together, uh, like um, including large corporations, smaller startups, Uh, perhaps with other entities like NGOs and United Nations type agencies. Uh, uh, My school has a small campus in Africa, and one of the most enriching uh, features of my professional life in the past half decade has been teaching in Africa. And that opened my eyes to the prospect that actually what I've been studying, corporations and startups partnering together, can also be a force for good. Uh, And I hope going forward, we'll be able to tap into that potential. Issues like climate change represent global challenges. uh, And I think at least in areas like that, hopefully countries will put aside their differences to work together. Business can be a force for good. And the big companies that have scale and the startups that have agility, I hope will also be able to have productive partnerships that have positive societal impact in issues like climate change and the other pressing concerns we have. Sure. No, we, we need every ounce of inventiveness we can because I, I don't see human nature giving up what it has. So the only way to get there is to get to something new mm. that uh, hopefully can uh, bend the curve a bit. 
So I want to thank you, Shamin, so much uh, for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, this has been episode number 93, How Non-Traditional Partners Can Win Together. My guest, Dr. Shamin Prashantam, is the author of Gorillas Can Dance, Lessons from Microsoft, and Other Corporations on Partnering with Startups. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. To check out other episodes, you can go to either my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or to the New Books Network's website and search by typing in the show's name. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one from a man named Thomas Stahlkamp, who said, the secret is to gang up on the problem rather than each other. Until next time, take care and be well. Thank you.